In today's episode of Beyond the Check, we hear from an inspiring LinkedIn executive who bridges the tech world and her spirituality while living in a Zen Buddhist center in the Santa Cruz Mountains. If you didn't need the money, would you still show up to your job? I'm John Weems. I've spent half of my career in the corporate world and the other half in full-time spiritual guidance as a pastor. I respect people of all views and I'm not here to tell you what to believe. I am here to encourage you to think beyond the check. Welcome to this podcast where we talk about work, life, and the meaning of our time. You'll hear from a wide range of business people from all spiritual views. In our first episodes, we heard from now three-time NBA champion, Golden State Warriors general manager, Bob Myers. I invite you to go back and listen to those if you haven't had a chance to appreciate the depth Bob brings that transcends basketball. Today, we hear from Ying Zhao Lu, Director of User Experience Design at LinkedIn. We'll dive right into Ying's unique spiritual perspective living in the Zen Center. Be sure you listen to the end to hear more about Ying's incredible ascension as a young immigrant from China to her role today. Ying, thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Okay. So we will, we will find our way back to your work at LinkedIn and definitely want to hear about that. Um, but sometimes when people think about the stereotypical successful tech worker, they have uh, images and assumptions about a very flashy lifestyle. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about your current living arrangements? And uh, then we'll take a step back and talk about how you got there. Absolutely. I currently live along with my life partner and our nine-month-old daughter at a Zen center in the Santa Cruz Mountains, but close enough to Silicon Valley that it's commutable. Um, so it is actually a very unusual living arrangement because there's very little connectivity at the Zen Center. There is Wi-Fi, but not sufficient really to do any kind of work or um, the kind of uh, you know broadband that we're come to expect typically. So in my own life, it tends to be very, very offline because of that. How, how did you find your way to living in the Zen Center? Was this something that is, was second nature to you or, or was it a longer time? No, it was very unexpected, uh, which life tends to often bring that to, to me for sure. But I also, in my conversations with other people who work in tech, I think this is not uncommon at all. So I did um, become interested in Buddhism about 15 years ago, I would say, listening to lectures and very sort of, you know, not taking myself as a student of it like uh, seriously at all. Um, but I did feel that I need access to nature primarily and sometimes to meditation and group meditation certainly can be helpful. So when I came to the Bay Area to take this particular job at LinkedIn, which was a very unique opportunity for me and I was excited about it, I was very reluctant to come back to the Silicon Valley, to the Bay Area. Um, I had left it to go to Seattle and I was very happy in Seattle. So when I decided I should come back here for this particular role, I decided I needed a, a sort of a, a release from it, um, meaning a potentially a place to meditate. So I searched online for this place um, and it was interesting. I went there a couple of times. I never actually went into the Zen meditation hall because I was actually late to both, both of the first times. So I only took walks around. Um, but the nature was so pretty that I kept going back. And I did a couple of uh, weekend self-retreats there just to have some quiet time. And then the people there started saying, okay, why don't you live here? You seem like a really good fit. And I said, no, 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 it's too far to my work. I don't have additional time for the responsibilities of being a resident nor for the meditation schedule. But they kept saying it. 
and I pay attention when people keep making requests of me. You know, I it's sort of a, a sign from the universe. And so I thought about it and I said, okay, maybe I should try it because there's a one month trial period anyway. And as soon as I tried it, I was like, ah, something shifts significantly. The quality of my time actually changes. Not only when I'm there, but when I'm away from it at work too. Time took on a more spacious quality. It mm. felt more rich. So then I, you know, extended the time and I've lived there now. Um, there was a break in the middle to give birth to the baby, but altogether about four years now. And my life certainly has taken a very different turn from that. Now let's, let's talk about time for a moment. Um, virtually every person we encounter, maybe everyone listening to this would like more time. And, and they yes. think if they commit to more things or, or divert their life in a certain way that uh, they won't be able to get everything done. Talk about this, this expansive nature of, of time as you've experienced Absolutely. It. And this is a super interesting thing. And I think a lot of how we approach life, it takes a conceptual shift. The conceptual shift for me is to, instead of seeing time as a finite game or a zero sum game, mm-hmm. um, or as balance, right? When people generally have this idea that if they want more time, that means they have to give up something, right? They have to give up uh, work in order to have more time with their family or friends or time to go for a jog, time to walk the dog, etc. However, there's a different way to perceive it, which is integration Mm. rather than balance integration. Integration, the visual metaphor I use is when ink is dropped in water. The ink quickly dissolves in all of the water. The Mm. swirls are actually very, very beautiful. And each time, because of randomization, it's completely unique. It's the first time that particular pattern has ever happened. And that's the case with our lives. And so the ink and the water becomes completely infused with each other and it you cannot separate it. So when we think of the things that give us energy as the ink and the rest of our life as water, when we do the things that give us energy actually are for our life, takes on that quality. And it really changes our decision-making process and it changes our experience of life itself. Now, is, is that a, a newer revelation for you? or has, Yeah, has from time... a couple of years ago. I would say it's, it's relatively new and I'm so you know, trying to live this way, right? And seeing how I can actively integrate um, more and more of my life. So it's an active practice mm-hmm. for me. But when I talk, when I, when I try to do it and when I talk um, about it with other people, I, I see I see a lot of, you know, people nodding and like people really resonate with this particular message. Now tell us, because most people will not experience exactly your life as it is now, uh, what are the, the typical responsibilities and, and schedule of, of a resident in a for Zen sure. center? For sure. So uh, it's a functioning Zen temple, meaning there's a public program every Sunday year round. Um, so, you know, the residents, and there's about a dozen of us, um, have the responsibility of putting on this program, right? So the center needs to be kept up. There needs to be, uh, you know, people who do the Sunday cooking. It's a, there's a, a public lunch that's freely offered. You know, the, everything needs to be kept clean. The supplies need to be stocked and so on and so forth, right? And there needs to be people who offer meditation instruction to the to the beginners. Uh, uh, and there's a daily meditation schedule as well, morning and evening. Um, so, you know, there's a daily manager role. Um, so these are the typical responsibilities of keeping the Zen Center functioning. And uh, the commitment to practice is a part of the requirement of being being there. 
Now, are there any other residents uh, with, with children or life partners? Um, there are ones with life partners, but we are the only ones with a, with a young baby. So yeah. that's a rather unique thing. And I do wish there are other families uh, around. And how, how is that experience of, of having a, a very young child in, in such a setting? How, how, sure. how does the community sure. respond? And- uh, they, it's, it's, it is interesting, right? Like a lot of things are... Um, unexpected. So there are some expected challenges and expected gains, but then there's so much of it that is not necessarily what you would expect until you go into it. I would say I what I didn't expect is how much um, the baby's energy really influences other people. Mm. Um, people really, it can really sort of bring them to the present moment, right? The baby's smile or her, you know, whatever things that she's doing, just because the baby, unlike adults, you just don't know what they're going to do at any instant. And, and, and so, so I think people also feel this genuine care and love for the baby. So the f- interactions have such freshness, mm-hmm. right? That I, I think I didn't expect how much it would mean to other people to have the baby there and how much they enjoy that, those little moments of interaction. So that's been wonderful. And, and obviously for the baby to be experiencing such love from a diverse you know, population, like all ages, is, is really, I think it's really interesting. I must have, a, a, you know, an impact on her in some way. Uh, the downside, of course, is that structurally there are some difficulties. Uh, for example, the kitchen and bath are communal, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, having a very little baby who's uh, crawling but not, you know, self-sufficient in any way, it means we can't really leave her in the room while we go like get a glass of water or you know go use the bathroom or something so there structurally that can be that can be difficult just because we have to actually figure out a way to carry her or have someone else tend to her you know while we take on like little tasks of uh, daily life so that you know so it does mean like we have to be more thoughtful about some just you know very small things now was that a difficult transition i I know Mm -hmm. at least speaking Mm -hmm. for myself Mm -hmm. i uh, appreciate uh, you know a a good shower and mm-hmm. all the privacy. How was that transition for you? Oh, for sure. Um, some of that was, was very difficult. I was finding that I don't have enough energy uh, to be thoughtful, you know, because uh, you're sort of always running on red in a way um, uh, for for a while, right? Like I just returned to work full time and then there's a long commute and then, you know, the being with the community also requires energy. I'm actually very introverted by nature. Mm-hmm. So being with people is not something that is naturally my state of rest, right? So I have to, you know, decide whether or not I want to be with people or I want to retreat with mm-hmm. people. So, so then, um, you know, and it was also winter. So, so there's can be very heavy rain. So, you know, going from the bedroom to the kitchen or bathroom actually requires going outside yes. up a slope. So, so these kinds of things was definitely, I felt like had a, uh, you know, it took a chunk out of my energy to be able to, to work it out. However, I think it's also just a, you know, especially with new parents, you, you just can't think beyond the next moment. You're mm-hmm. just dealing with it. Like what, what needs to happen now? Right. So in some ways it's actually kind of a really grounding practice. So, I don't know if I would necessarily do these few months exactly like it was if I had the chance to do it over, right? If I would do it exactly the same way. Um, but I think there was there was a lot of really beautiful moments from it too. So I don't regret it. Now, of your, your fellow residents, mm-hmm. um, what are the longest some of them have lived in the community? Oh, yeah. Some of them have been there like 
dozen years, fourteen maybe. Yeah, but those are are generally the the generation above us. So so they are retired or semi-retired. So you know, different life outlook. Yeah. Now, obviously, your your daughter is immersed in this community. Um, as a as a young child, were you exposed to any form of spirituality? Not at all. Uh, I grew up in China and actually was in a science um, environment um, in a university. So science was the only religion, so to speak. Um, so. It was only when I came to the U.S. Um, for for college for for uh, for school that I realized that science is not objective; it's also subjective. You know. Yeah. So let's talk about your path sure. from from science to to Buddhism. When, sure. you know, when did this start to develop and lead to where you are now? Sure. I, I learned critical thinking. I was in America in college, um, which I think is the beginning of uh, a pursuit of truth. Right. Um, and it wasn't really until my early 30s that I started to um, attend Buddhist talks and, and then seeing a sort of a feeling of recognition and a feeling of understanding that I knew what they were looking, um, that what they were talking about. Much of my 20s, I think I was a little bit lost, um, which... I wish I I wish I had people to have these kinds of conversations with then because I think it would have given me a little bit more uh, diverse approaches to to try different things. But I did the typical thing after college of you know working uh, around the Bay Area, different kinds of jobs, and um, eventually the first dot com boom. And I was relatively successful in that. I uh, I did enjoy my work and I enjoyed learning a great deal, but then I wasn't really sure the deeper meanings of work and life but I did decide to go traveling um so and I initially started searching for a grad school uh, in Europe because I wanted to go somewhere else potentially for grad school but then very quickly I realized I was more interested in traveling in the university of life so to speak Mm -hmm. than in in grad school so I then and I also realized I'm more interested in being developing countries and developed countries. So I changed, uh, you know, my direction, went to Latin America and then later Asia and Africa and traveled uh, for most of two years and much of it solo. So then I started to develop a deeper confidence um, in not only myself, um, but also simply in chance in life itself in the sort of unknowability of what could happen um and then you know probably not accidentally soon after i came back buddhist talks started to resonate more and more importantly i started to pay more attention that i decided to have more of these things that made sense to me in my life so i made up more opportunities um to go to these talks, uh, to occasionally meditate. And eventually I went on a couple of uh, longer retreats, Vipassana retreat, um, a Korean Zen retreat. Some of it when I was also traveling around, but taking the opportunity of, uh, you know, not, not being uh, in a nine to five work schedule to, to do such things. And so, so my life started to change, I would say, from that point on. And you, in a previous conversation, you'd mentioned being influenced by Native American spirituality. Can right. you talk a little about that? Of course, yes. So it was also, um, this is about 10 years ago now, um, that um, I related to traveling and the kind of 
um, experiential education work that I was doing, uh, I came upon uh, people, other people who were interested in Native American spiritual practices. And initially, I was just going it sort of with the curiosity of a traveler, you know, something so exotic happening essentially in, in you know, the, the backyards of Silicon Valley. And so when I started going to it regularly, I, I quickly became amazed at the people who were um, offering these ceremonies because essentially no money is exchanged. So people are spending so much of their time and energy uh, doing this kind of service simply because they feel called to do it and because it's they they believe it's their sacred responsibility and above all else. But when they were doing it, they were so joyful and spontaneous and, and humorous. And I I was just I had a sense that, you know, I want to be like them. Mm. I couldn't see myself being that joyful at that time. And I was like, wow, maybe I could be like them. Maybe mm. I could be so natural like, like they are. They would sometimes go from tears to laughter and back to tears or back to laughter, you know, in a couple of sentences. And you could just see how emotion flowed, uh, f internal and external. And it was just no, no barrier. They were so relaxed, you mm -hmm. know, and themselves. So that's what really inspired me. Um, the ceremonies themselves are um, sweat lodges and, and later communal ceremonies like um uh, participating in uh, supporting a vision quest or supporting ascendance. Um, so, and, and these are forms that have been passed down um, in a couple, uh, through a couple hundred uh, years with very little change. So I also just felt very honored to mm. be allowed witness to such a mm, pure and sincere tradition. How did you gain acceptance to, to have that experience? Yes, um, these ceremonies are always invited by word of mouth, and you're simply um, earning respect by being helpful. Um, and people are very accommodating, but still, there's a there's a there's a bit of um, feeling of whether or not someone is helpful when they're around. So, and luckily I, I grew up in Asian culture where that's also very much expected, especially of a young person, right? To, 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 to especially pay attention to the elders and being helpful however they need to be, right? So, and that's a, that's much of a way of life that has, um, I didn't know how useful it is, um, that it really has a lot of payback, right? Like if you, if you, uh, are attentive to what's around you and you try to be helpful to the people doing whatever, then you will make a lot of opportunities for yourself. And that's exactly what happened with the Native American ceremonies is that, you know, eventually I was, you know, people wanted to introduce me to other teachers or I was invited to ceremonies because I could, sh I, they could tell I was sincere, right? That I honestly wanted to, to understand what's going on. And I, they could probably see more so than I could myself that I was benefiting mm. from these practices. Roughly where on the map were you? This started in uh, the Bay Area in Vallejo, mm -hmm. um, and then eventually in the South Bay in uh, sort of Watsonville, Gilroy area. And then um, the, uh, people do a lot of traveling ceremonies. So then eventually it was also in Northern Oregon, in uh, North Carolina, in Missouri, so mm -hmm. all over the place. So many of our listeners are exploring various forms of spirituality. They, 
you know, may not uh, yet be where where you are, but uh, especially as terms like Zen are thrown around and there are many company names that right. I'm sure very well-intentioned have, right. have Zen attached to them. Right. Um, talk to us a little bit about the, the significance and, and any nuances of Buddhism to a, a person who is trying to explore and understand their own practice. Absolutely. And... Um Indeed, like I'm cautious about attaching labels, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's Buddhism or some other wisdom tradition, I think it's actually totally fine to treat things more agnostically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and indeed, I think we're getting a lot of the benefits of um, Zen or mindfulness, mm-hmm. right? Without necessarily uh, f- having sort of the, this, the, envelope of Buddhism around these practices of Zen or, or mindfulness practices, um, mm-hmm. which I think is totally fine. And I want people to trust their own sort of impulses. If they feel pulled to know more, then the vast resources of Buddhism or other spiritual traditions are, are there for them to find. And they can... Um, you know, become a more serious student and find a teacher and find a, a community of practice in Buddhism. We call that Sangha. Um, and those things would naturally happen as one progresses. Um, but it, in the early days, I, I'm not too, I, I, I am a skeptic in general. However, I think it's actually okay that there are this and that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, commercial offerings called Zen this or, mm-hmm. you know, mindfulness that. It's, it's okay. Yeah. So for a, a person out there who maybe is hearing what you're saying, they're finding it appealing is, is moving to a, a Zen center for everyone. <laughs> what, what should they be thinking about? What are some ways for them to, uh, to have an experience and, and determine ways that, that they may move in a similar direction? Sure. Sure. And I often think, uh, it's better to go slow mm-hmm. than it is go to, f- to go fast because there's, you know, often, especially growing up in this kind of culture, we're a little bit conditioned to go fast, right? Mm-hmm. And to sort of check things off. And so I would encourage people to um, maybe be a little less impulsive in this way and actually, like, you know, take your time to, like, hear various traditions and, and see how they sit with you, see how it feels. And, and, you know, going on a retreat here and there can be useful, but more importantly, see whether or not your life can actually benefit from it. Your daily mundane life, you know, the day-to-day experience of going to work, traffic, uh, talking with your friends, talking with your family, taking out the trash, whatever it is, see whether or not you can feel some difference in those moments and that would give you the signal of what's next so let's let's explore that a little bit so you you know, you've mentioned morning and evening meditation let's talk about uh you know a, a wednesday for you when you're working what is the what are the between the meditation times look like in terms of how you're processing your your commute and you know, oh, for sure. obstacles at work etc for sure for sure um yeah and certainly there's a, a lot of uh Obstacles, I could say, are sort of the gravity to pull toward um, a you know very hectic kind of being, right? For for us, I, I certainly have no shortage of things to do, and also because now I have the baby, I you know tend to concentrate the sort of getting stuff done mode in my time in the office. So I do move pretty fast. What I try most to do is when I'm with people to 
be present with them because often those conversations turn in unexpected directions. Like my work conversations often turn into kind of coaching or, you know, talking about personal life in a way that has depth. It's not just like chit chat, Mm -hmm. but actually go somewhere. And I'm often surprised at how quickly things develop in that way so I try to like be really present and allow for that to happen and 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 those um, conversations have led to you know uh, again like things I didn't necessarily expect like you know uh, collaboration opportunities or, or people who uh, really f- make different decisions because of something that that you know we had talked about so that's where I try to really slow things down and there is simply a lot of you know, there is also still like rushing around to simply get things done in the time that there is there. So that's what this kind of typical day looks like is I do have a lot of meetings and, uh, you know, and, and trying to, uh, be present with each thing, but then quickly also moving on to the next thing and like what needs to be dealt with today. Yeah. So many people struggle with uh, cell phones, for instance. Sure. What, what is your relationship like with your cell phone? It's interesting. I, I uh, you know, and I work in social media here, so I'm probably the least attached to the phone person that I I know. Um, and I'm not. I, I have thought about it. I'm not sure exactly what the distinction is, but I think I tend to be very non-addicted to anything. Mm. I, I, I tend to like like to disrupt myself sometimes. Like if I see myself doing something too much, I then sort of go the op- opposite direction and try to live without that thing for a while. And But the phone has never had um, this pull to, to, for me uh, as it did for other people um, I would pick up the phone do what it needs I need to do on it like check directions or whatever and I simply put it down I don't go on checking other things um, mm-hmm. so 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 my relationship with technology is very technology in general um, but certainly the phone is is quite utilitarian it, I do not feel like it's a master you know Um so I, I think uh, I basically the word the, the world of form to me doesn't have doesn't have a strong pull. Um, I think it may have like ten or more years ago, but maybe because I have a practice, or maybe because I'm just a little bit naturally uh, less attached to things that. Um, the world of form is is always a little bit like it can come and go. I'm not. Uh, it's I I, I know probably from a relatively early age that I'm not really about the things that we can see and perceive. Mm. So perhaps for, uh, if, if a listener knows that they are particularly uh, addicted sure. to their cell phone, not sure. that I'm projecting my own sure. issues onto anyone else, of course, um, <laughs> perhaps practicing, setting it aside a little bit. Yeah even weaning uh, is is at least an initial spiritual practice that could be oh, beneficial. Oh, yeah. One thing I could talk about is like I d- actually do recommend a, a media diet almost for everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I used to listen to NPR like, you know, every single morning, right, mm-hmm. while I was getting up or in the commute. Um, this is like, I don't know, five, four years ago. And then eventually I was like, hmm, this is not actually helpful for me anymore. Mm-hmm. So then I did a pretty dramatic uh diet from NPR and then later other media. And I actually do find that uh, uh, it it gives me so much more space. And I I still have opinions about what's happening in the world. This doesn't mean like I've all of a sudden like, you know, like put my head in the sand or anything. 
but I, I realized how much that was actually just noise, even from good sources. So that was an interesting discovery for me. So I highly recommend that for um, just about everyone. So many people are working um, so that they can get whatever they have determined to be enough. They, they may have a magic number in mind, uh, and then they will pursue their practice, or then they will yeah. practice philanthropy. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with, with money and an understanding of, of what is enough? Mm -hmm. I hear you. Um, certainly from my own standpoint right now, it can be a little tricky to talk about because indeed I do work in a tech company mm -hmm. in this day and age with a very good salary. So I, I, I'm cautious of sounding hypocritical, right? Um, so I... And I did focus, I would say, the last 10 years or so of creating enough of a financial nest egg for mm -hmm. me. Um, in my way, it was uh, creating a little bit of rental income mm -hmm. so that I wanted specifically to no longer be holding to a paycheck. And so that's a particular strategy that I first was sort of, you know, finding it a little bit accidentally because I decided to take a job back in the Bay Area and it has a house in Seattle I, I didn't want to let go of. And then I was like, oh yeah, actually like, you know, rental turns out to be um, tax uh, beneficial. My temperament is pretty well suited for it. I seem to have very good luck with people. Um, then I decided to like, okay, maybe this is actually my sort of financial strategy. Mm. And it, it actually worked. And, and obviously that takes, that take a lot of luck. Um, and I do recommend that, you know, people, especially for women to like have an idea of financial independence, uh, at least independently thinking about finances. And because that gave me a lot of power to be in control of my own finances. It's less about arriving at a particular goal, um, but it's more just like I it's I am in charge of it. It mm -hmm. is my destiny to manage. Um, so I do feel that with a little bit of rental income coming in, and I know I can live quite simply, you know, from my younger years, that um, from this point on, you know, I, you know, if my desire is to be doing something else that doesn't generate income, I have the freedom to do so. Um, which is, which is, I, I know it's more than a lot of people can can say for themselves. So, uh, so again, like I don't, I don't take my my luck for for granted at, at all. But I also do think in this day and age, it's it's more achievable than what a lot of people think. If they set out a strategy in 10 years, 15 years, they can, they can probably achieve a good chunk of it. And that would give them so much more um, freedom, you know, and freedom is, is very, very important. So, and then after that, the discipline, or at the same time as well, the discipline is also to realize how little is enough, right? Mm -hmm. This practice of letting go of our desires that don't really serve us, I think is very important. In Zen practice, there is actually a, um, you know, chance, some of them is, um, you know, don't take on extra wealth, right? Don't desire great things, even for one's family. There is an understanding that with wealth, it comes also burdens, mm -hmm. So you want to have just enough that you're not worried about your survival, right? right, right? Or like your, you know, your children are provided for, etc. And but you don't want to have 
too much of it because the, you, that would that would just simply uh, something you have to bear for the rest of your life, right? You have a lot more to lose. So there is, I think, a balance in this case, you know, we could say of how much is right for you and your family. And I think that's actually quite individual. Our mutual friends, right, yes. um, Chris and Linda, they decided to have a very small house. And I really, really admire that. For a family of four, they make it work beautifully by living on a small footprint in so many ways. And I, I fully, fully subscribe to that philosophy. Yes. So you have an, have an enlightened view or a place many people would aspire toward. Let's talk a little bit about how you got there. Um, rewinding, what was your first job? Uh, oh, sure, 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 sure. Um, I came as an immigrant at 18. So my first couple very short stints were, were, were in the restaurant business, mm-hmm. actually without uh, proper you know, legal paperwork to work. And I was horrible at it. So <laughs> I didn't last any amount of time. Um, I was... It, it's interesting. It's very humbling uh, to be in the service industry. And mm-hmm. I, it probably benefited me, but I, I must say I, I, I wasn't very good. I didn't learn quickly enough and I wasn't fast enough on my feet. Um, and then the next real job was uh, working in the garment factory as a production assistant. Mm-hmm. And I did actually learn a great deal. And um, I was in community college and I did that job for for a couple of years. And the community of women, especially the seamstresses and other, other um, you know, professional workers, I were very diverse from all cultures. And I it was actually really, really beneficial. I had a sense of family um, there so that they helped, you know, me and the other younger woman feel like supported because the families, the, the women often brought like extra food, et cetera, to share. So this kind of like loving environment was, was, uh, was, was great. How did those experiences shape your worldview and, and how do you still draw from them in your current work? Mm, yes, I would say, you know, a little bit to what I said earlier about the Native American practice mm-hmm. being helpful mm-hmm. in any kind of environment. I, I see, I say that's key, uh, because in any kind of work, right, there's the stuff that's sort of given to you to do, and there's some, simply this sort of situational awareness, I would say. You can see what other people are doing, what needs to be done. You can see little opportunities for improvement all the time. And it actually amazes me still, like even in a pretty, uh, you know, highly skilled uh, and highly motivated workplace like this, there's still sometimes like obvious opportunities for for making things better that people pass on. So I would say, Make yourself make make yourself useful in those little moments, and and there's there's sometimes I say there's power all around simply for us to take it, you know make make things better, make people's lives better, and you're becoming more powerful and you're becoming a leader in those little moments. Yes. So uh, post restaurant and and mm-hmm. garment factory, mm-hmm. uh, you had some experiences included at Microsoft. Right. Um, pre-LinkedIn, any, anything that stands out, any epiphanies, learnings, uh, accomplishments of, of which you are particularly proud? Hmm. Mm. I think the things I'm most proud of are related to work, but not directly coming from work. I think um, I am proud of um, making radical choices. For example, leaving uh, you know really good job opportunities to go travel the world, mm. um, and combining 
different kinds of work to make a unique niche for myself and essentially changing my own job description from the inside to make it work for me Mm. Um, and by making it really work for me, making myself really useful to the organization, I then actually create, you know, uh, opportunities for others, right? And they also see how I did it, right? So then they can they can do something for their roles as well. So I would say those are, um, you know, essentially becoming more of myself in the workplace and then supporting other people becoming more of themselves is what I'm most proud proud of. So let's come to the, the present day. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your role at LinkedIn. Sure. I currently manage a few teams that work on the international editions of LinkedIn, specifically for em- uh, markets that are emergent to LinkedIn, which are China, India, Japan, Germany. Yes. Um, any any surprises in, in coming here? Um, sure. Uh it's the pace of change is very very fast so i have been here 5 years or so and it is amazing how much the company has changed and how much we do things um change so my 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 role actually naturally needed to change um and to constantly you know both like adapt to the changes and also leading the changes is is mm. definitely an interesting uh line to walk now, if, if someone goes to your LinkedIn profile, they can see the Zen Center on there. Do, do you find people gravitating toward you at, at work uh, with, with questions related to your spirituality? Some people do. Um, I also, over these last few years, I've slowly uh, started talking mm-hmm. this way more, right? Uh, you know, initially I was very cautious about bringing some of these uh, Buddhist concepts, and I certainly don't use the word Buddhism, but more and more because because many young people do like you see their their interest being sparked right and then they ask me questions first one on one and then sometimes in groups um i was getting the affirmation that people are actually interested and more people are pulled towards it than those people who are uh put off by it right they some people do like you know they don't ask me anything about it or they may even distance me just a little bit because i then stand for something that they're not necessarily comfortable with, or I, or maybe just simply because I, I seem a little rogue in some way. Hmm. Um, um, however, there's there's uh, you know there's more positive uh, responses, positive feedback um, with with how I communicate all this at work. But you're not actively trying to recruit anyone or convert anyone. You're just present as you are. Correct. Correct. Yes. Yes. So any, in terms of your, your current role, as you commute back and forth, as you experience the daily, any sense of, of harmony or, or conflict and how, you know, five years in and, and mm-hmm. now living at the center, um, how are you feeling? Um, yeah, I'm very grateful for the last five years. It's certainly my, my life is significantly different. I have learned so much about leadership, both, um, uh, on the job and because of my own way of integration. So I, I have, um, you know, without necessarily being so intentional, developed a personal brand, so to speak, right, mm-hmm. about being a particular kind of leader. And I do find, um, you know, that I am a role model, especially for young women from different cultures. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's not something I 
could have hoped for. And so I'm very, very lucky and I, I take it quite seriously and I want to continue to do work in this, in this way because I can see it has a significant impact on, on people. Have there been times over the past few years when your spiritual commitment was tested? I think my bigger commitment of seeing life as practice mm. um, has not been tested. It's only been more affirmed because mm-hmm. there certainly has been plenty of challenges. Um, but the um, the sort of envelope of life as practice is actually has given me a great deal of solace and a great deal of strength. Right, that no matter what life brings me, I'm actually prepared for it by life itself, right? That I'm actually essentially chosen for these particular kinds of challenges. Mm. And my role is to face these challenges as well as I can. And that's what I, that's my responsibility in life at this particular point. Um, So I have had a challenging pregnancy. You know, there's certainly uh, difficulty in relationships, you know, sometimes, especially now that my family situation is, uh, you know, more complex, Um, you know, and, you know, know, I think every mother goes through uh, a lot of tension in her identity, you know, being a working professional and being a mother sometimes can be very much at at odds. the brain works differently and so on. But I, I, I would say um, overall I feel more affirmed by life and by the practice rather than tested in the way that I feel more distanced uh, from it. Now, I understand you've, you've had uh, involvement through the years in hospice. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. And I wish I had more uh, involvement with that. I So in Seattle, I um, did a little bit of a what they call yoga uh, uh, work um, with hospice. These are uh, pretty advanced. I mean, it is hospice, right? So, so people don't necessarily have the physical capability to do yoga poses in any way. However, it can be just a little bit of massage or touch or, you know, they're, they're being passive, but we can move the limbs a little bit for, for blood circulation, etc. cetera. It, and it's more simply about both touch and simply about human interaction. Mm. I did learn a lot about um, one thing I really like is that um, life and death are not opposites. Mm. The opposite of death is birth. Mm. And which I have a you know personal experience of with the birth of my daughter. So I can see that life is indeed continuous, right? And that gives us so much more peace to see life and death and birth in this particular light. Mm-hmm. At least for me, that I feel so much, um, you know, there may be pain and the pain of loss for sure in life. That's a part of life. But I have less fear, right? Because life is continuing and life is abundant in its essence. Beautiful. I think that sounds like an excellent place to end. I thank you so much for your time today and uh, would encourage our people to click around their favorite search engine, learn about ways to explore their spirituality through some of Ying's sharings today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for making time to listen today. And again, many thanks to Ying for sharing her extraordinary perspective. In the next episode, we'll hear from a man often referred to as the godfather of fintech or financial technology. Ron Suber will share his perspective on ways that fintech empowers more people globally and help us understand the difference between retirement and rewirement. Until next time, 
keep living and working beyond the check.